0: Hey, Cherie here, the host and producer of Women's Running Stories. I want to tell you about another podcast that I know you'll really like. It's Starting Line 1928, and it's an oral history project documenting the lived experiences of women distance running pioneers. The women who run and host this show are a team of freelance historians, and they interview women who are trailblazers in the sport with a special emphasis on women of color and others whose voices haven't been heard as often. Their project spans the 20th century, chronicling individuals who paved the way for a post Title IX world. Their guests have included Olympians, steeplechase pioneers, ultra running champions, coaches, and those who fought hard for women to have new opportunities in the sport. What I really like about Starting Line 1928 is because it is an oral history project and the women who run the interviews are academics. They do get into all the details of these women's lives, and you really get an inside look into what their pioneering time was like. And I will point out an especially great episode that I loved recently, and that was with Cheryl Trewergy, and she is also Shalane Flanagan's mother. And her story was really incredible. It was just such an amazing snapshot of what women of her generation had to deal with, and also the foundation that they laid that we are benefiting from today. So she is just one of many, many pioneering women that you can hear about on Starting Line 1928. Go check them out, subscribe, listen. You can learn more on their website, startingline1928.com, and that is 1928, all numerals. And you can follow them on Instagram at StartingLine1928 and on Twitter at StartLine1928. All right, now on to the episode.
1: Women's running's Running Stories. My name is Sarah Mae Berman. I was born in 1936. I met my husband in 52 at a friend's party and we married in December of 55 and we're still married. We have three children and six grandchildren and um, he got me running. Yes, Sarah's husband Larry did get her
0: running and she became a pioneer and a legend in the sport and that is the story you're about to hear. But first, welcome to Women's Running Stories. I am Cherie Louise Turner. I am your host and producer, And behind me, the music that you hear, that's done by Cormac O'Regan. He does all the original music, and he does the score. And before we get rolling into the episode, I wanted to mention that we are really proud members now of the Evergreen Podcast Network. We came on with two other women's sports podcasts that are run by women, Hear Her Sports, and Keeping Track, and if you don't follow them, they are absolutely fantastic, and I suggest that you go listen to their episodes and subscribe. Evergreen was excited to bring us on and champion women's sports. We are really excited about the support that we're getting and it's just been great working with them. It's wonderful to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. It's been wonderful forging this show from nothing over the past almost three years. And now it's exciting to have some bigger support and look to grow the show more and work with other podcasts and get stories of women athletes out to a bigger audience. So you can check out the network. their evergreenpodcast.com. You can find us in the new and trending section right now. And we have a page on their site. And I'm going to link to all of that stuff in the show notes. So thanks to Evergreen. We're really looking forward to growing with them in 2023 and beyond. It's a great way to start the new year. Now back to Sarah May Berman. Sarah started paving the way in running, as you'll hear, back in the 1960s and 1970s. She is best known these days for winning the Boston Marathon three times, and that was in the years before women were officially allowed to run. There was that six-year period between 1966 and 1971 when women ran Boston unofficially. It all started with Bobby Gibb when she popped out from the bushes to participate in In the 1966 Boston Marathon, and we have that whole story in Bobby's episode, which I will link to in the show notes. Bobby went on to win again in 67 and 68, and then Sarah May picked up the torch and she won in 69, 70, and 71. The governing body of running in the U.S. at the time, the Amateur Athletic Union, or AAU as a lot of people refer to it, changed the rules after that and allowed women to start running marathons officially beginning in 1972. I do want to identify a few people that Sarah mentions along the way here, so you know who she's talking about. First, there's Will Cloney and Jock Semple. They were co-directors of the Boston Marathon, sort of in the time when she was running. She also mentions runner Nina Cusick, Nina was a competitor as well as a friend, and she was instrumental in convincing the AAU to allow women to run marathons officially, and she then went on to win the Boston Marathon in 1972 and win the New York City Marathon that same year. Something else to know about Sarah Mae Berman is that she was also a really competitive cross-country skier and then has gone on to become a competitor in the sport of orienteering, and she competes in those sports to this day. Throughout her entire athletic career, Larry has been by her side. He's been a competitor himself and a great supporter of her athletics, and he has served as her coach. They have a long history of doing all of this together. The couple has also been very involved in the sports they've participated in, which you're gonna hear about in this story. Something else you're gonna notice is that these two don't just do sports together, they do interviews together. And you're gonna hear Larry a time or two in this story. You may even catch a laugh or two from me. We recorded this interview in the couple's Boston area home a few days after Sarah and Larry had returned from their most recent orienteering competition, which immediately prompted one of my first questions for Sarah.
1: Yeah, I'm curious, what keeps you racing these days? Oh, if you you don't move, they start throwing dirt over you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> keep that one in mind as I as, as the years go by I mean it, yeah. Uh, what do you suggest that you stop for physical no, no no I'm just asking what keeps you motivated
0: well, to keep racing because you could because again like I often think about this idea of like well you could just go cross country skiing and you could do all of these things no, but, but there isn't there is something to be said for showing up putting a number on getting yourself to a start line
1: That takes some effort. Improvement and meeting the challenge. Yeah. Meeting the challenge. And it it is a challenge. It's a worthy challenge.
0: This immediately clued me in to Sarah's competitive side. And that drive, which is so clearly strong to this day, was something that was ignited years ago. Athletic pursuits for Sarah have always had a purpose, which culminated on race day.
1: That was the test of how well you were doing, how well you were training. I mean, you're not just training uh, into the ether. You're you're training for a purpose to get better, to improve. And how do you know you're improving? You go into
0: a race. And that's how it's been for her, pretty much from the start. Even before Sarah began competing, her ideas of being an athlete were very much tied to this idea of racing. So let's go back, way back to the very beginning, and hear how it all started.
1: Larry was still going to graduate school at MIT, while I was still finishing my college at Rhode Island School of Design. And we lived in Providence. And so he would take the train every morning to Boston. They had lots of trains in those days. And in the summertime, rather than do that, we rented a room in the Boston area so he wouldn't have to do so much commuting. And uh, in 57, we rented a room from friends who lived near Jamaica Pond. And I hadn't really been running at all. I just didn't occur to me. Larry had run in high school and in college. Boys had sports to do in those days, and girls really didn't and uh, he he decided he wanted to keep up his running and we were near Jamaica Pond. So we would go over to the pond and he would run around the pond, it's 1.4 miles. And uh, I know because when eventually I began to run, I had to know what the the distance was. And so I would sit there as a dutiful little wife and waited while he did his workout. One day he said to me, why don't you come run with me? Now that was the summer of 57. The longest distance women were permitted to run at accredited meets was 200 meters. So the only girls I had seen running were sprinters. So when he said, let's go run, I got beside him on the path and then I dashed away. And um, my ears began ringing and my breath came hard. and. Finally, after about a hundred yards, I said, "I can't go any faster." He said, "You don't have to." This was news to me, but I'm, I'm, I wanted to lay the foundation. The fact was, the only running sports I'd seen girls doing were these sprints, so I thought that's what I was supposed to do. So he taught me that that's not what you're supposed to do. You're just supposed to run comfortably, and eventually, I was able to do the whole pond in one piece, and. Um, That was a big achievement. It was a sense of accomplishment. When I graduated from RISD in 1958, uh, I was already pregnant. Our daughter was born in uh, at the end of August. Our son was born uh, 15 m- months later. And uh, our younger son was born uh, in 63. So that's August 58, November 59, and February 63. And by 62, having two young kids to chase around, Uh, It was a pretty big job. And one day, my husband turned to me and he said, are you happy with the shape you're in? Well, I really wasn't. And he said, we should go running. So, we eventually did. And it was a new long distance for women, half mile. And the reason was that in 1960, the Olympics were going to be in Rome. The Italians must have had a very good half-mile woman yeah. runner, and uh, so they they had it the, the half mile for women. And our amateur athletic union (AAU) suddenly had to get religion. They had to add the half mile to their regular track meets, and that began in '58. And so. By 62, when, uh, after our second child, and Larry wanted me to come running again, when we went to track meets, they had a woman's half mile, and I could run the half mile. Now, you have to realize, in 62, I was uh, 26, and the, the girls I was racing against were teenagers. I remember the first one I ran in... Mass. I was the only woman to do the half mile. And um, then there were some other track meets in New York and um, I wasn't the fastest there, but I could cover the distance. The thing was that there were women competing at the half mile all around the country. But um, we didn't at the time have email or, um, or Twitter or whatever. And we would find out about each other's performances weeks, months, years later. There was a, a, a publication about running called Long Distance Log. And uh, I don't know how many times a year it came out. but. Um, If a woman ran a substantial time for some distance, they would publish it, and uh, so you would find out months later or longer. In 1965, we went to the AAU convention, which was in Washington, D.C., and there was a doctor named Gabe Merkin, M.I.R.K.I.N., who had done studies about women running uh, from some work that had been done in Europe and so on. And uh, he was there, we were there, and we were trying to persuade the AAU, not for a championship, just to allow a longer distance for women. This is in the middle 60s. Three miles. What they said to us, you're trying to exploit little girls. They couldn't figure that anybody older than high schoolers would want to do this running business. And... So, if we wanted longer distances, we were trying to take advantage of what, was, what would be required of teenagers. And Gabe Merkin spoke about uh, the studies he had seen and the work he had done and so on. They paid no attention. They weren't interested in anything we had to say. But the next year, the convention was in Hawaii, and we figured maybe some of these, you know, stick-in-the-muds won't be there, so we went with our kids and Larry's mother. And we went to the convention, and they didn't want to let us talk they didn't want to hear us. Finally, one of the vice presidents I forget her name said, "Let them speak." so we talked about it, and they listened politely and ignored us. but by the time the, by the end of the decade, women were allowed to run officially two miles i mean the 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 myths about what women could not couldn't do, you wouldn't believe today. And um, of course, in 66, Bobby Gibb ran the marathon and didn't die. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Through the years from 62, and remember I had a child in February of of 63. So uh, through the years, we began adding distance to how much I could run. And um, as an, uh, an MIT alum, we had use of the MIT track. And um, we would bring the kids down to sit at the edge of the track. It was a cinder track in those days, and there were piles of dirt and cinders at a location beside the track. So we would sit the little kids there. They could see us as we went around the track, we could see them. And eventually, I was able to run five whole miles, and that was big. And then Larry said, now you've got to run it faster. I had never been coached. I didn't even know what a coach was. I had never trained at anything physical. He had. He had bad experience as a high schooler, as a, as a collegian, and because boys were doing that kind of thing. Girls weren't. So Larry had me doing several kinds of workouts. Uh, one kind of workout was um, 220 intervals. And This helped you figure out what pace you were running if you were running longer. And so if you ran a 220 at a certain pace, and the number of them, if you could put them all together, that would be impressive. But try as I might, I just couldn't break eight minute pace for five miles. Even with him running beside me, I just couldn't make it. And so he decided, that the best way for me to improve my time at this distance was to go in a race. Now, the only race available at that distance was a men's race, but public roads are free. I wasn't gonna wear a number, there was, that would be no problem. And he said, it's worth 40 seconds a mile to be running in a big group of people. That sounded very easy, just go in a race and suddenly you're faster. Actually, that's really what happened, and um, the race was in Marlborough, Mass. It was a five-mile handicap race. Now a handicap race means that the slower runners start first, and the faster runners are arrayed in timelines in back of them, and the handicapper supposedly knows what all these fellows have done for best time so they can array them appropriately in back. On the starting line were two old men in their late 50s and two young boys and me. And we arrived with a babysitter because someone had to look after the kids. I was wearing shorts. Um, equipment clothing was a problem for women because there weren't proper clothes. I tried to buy something uh, at Filene's or Jordan's and it it just didn't work. The shorts were not short enough. They weren't made out of nylon, they, they rubbed in the wrong places. And, and um, in, for a singlet, I took this, the sleeves off a t-shirt. So I was wearing boys' running shorts and this and this singlet. And um, Larry and I went into the Y, the local Y, where he was gonna register. And the guys saw me wearing running clothes. Oh, are you going to run today? Yeah. Hey, that's neat. I wish my wife did it. I wish my girlfriend did it. I mean, that was very encouraging. They were pleased. OK, so the race started, the gun went off, and we all took off. Now, I had, he had trained me at what pace I should be running by with the 220 intervals. So we took off, and I'm trying to remember what kind of pace I should be running to be eight-minute pace. And eventually the lines that started in back of us started catching up to us. And the guys were terrific. Hey, you're looking good, nice going, keep it up. That was, they all encouraged me as I went by and they didn't all go by. I was 38, 37, big, big cheer. The thing about the Boston Marathon, it is a real magnet. It is is iconic. Uh, It is something to aspire to. Now, there are other marathons in different parts of the country that um, are equally inspirational, but um, Boston is iconic because it's, it's, the Boston Marathon started in 1897, so it was, it was a respected tradition. And uh, we decided that I would run the 69 marathon. I wasn't wearing a number. It was no problem. Besides, Jock Semple had seen me in road races over the years. Because after the first one we did, she you know we she continued to run races yeah. regularly. So she they became a fixture. So they knew I was fit, they knew I was trained, they knew i wasn't wasn't trying to get publicity. Larry ran with me, and I ran well. I ran a 3:22:46, and uh, in '70, uh, Larry had me on a program of doing a road race on Saturday and a long run on Sunday, in addition to whatever else I was doing during the week. And we would do two workouts a day. In the morning, there was a, there's a loop from our house to, to, Quincy, to Quincy Street and back, which is a mile and a half and uh he would do three loops i would do two loops and then in the afternoon we would go to fresh pond and do additional or to the track yeah and and do 6 miles so there were there were weeks when i was doing 65 miles a week 70 miles a week in fact about a month and a half before boston there were two weeks when i was doing over 80 miles a week and we were lucky on the on race day it was cold it was cloudy Uh, There was a tailwind. Larry had watched the weather religiously, and he was sure that the temperature would be in the upper 40s, so I wore a T-shirt and shorts. Uh, Unfortunately, it was only in the upper 30s, spitting snow a little bit. Anyway, I was to run with a teenager from our club, Dick Moore. He was to run with you. Well, (laughs) Because he had never run one. Um, Oh, and -hmm. I had run several, so I'd run at least two, so I was experienced. So uh, we ran together, and um, and Larry, the year before, Larry and I and John Boris from the BAA had measured the BAA course to get it accredited. They had never gotten their course accredited. It had never been certified. Certified. Oh, wow. And it was going to be used for the Olympic tryout. And what I did was actually... I went out and I I wanted to ride the first part I got marks for the first four quarter miles on the Boston course so that Sarah when she was going to run I would know what my pace was she could look at her watch and make sure she's not going too fast Yeah. so um, Dick and I ran and we knew where the quarter miles were and we were in fact going a little faster than we had intended Uh, we let up very slightly, because we wanted to make a good time. And um, I was making good time. I I was well trained. The weather was favorable. But my hands were getting cold. Remember, I was wearing a t-shirt and shorts. And it's in the upper 30s, low 40s, maybe. And there's a slight breeze. My hands were freezing. I kept looking at the crowd to see if anybody had a pair of gloves. I saw a woman with fur-lined gloves. I couldn't. Bear the thought of that. But as we passed uh, Wellesley College, an older runner named Julian Siegel ran by. Hey, Sarah May, how you doing? Oh, I said, you were smart to wear gloves. Oh, he said, are your hands cold? Here, take mine. I said, no, no, you'll get cold. Yeah. No, he said, I'm get fine I got a pair of white garden gloves, yeah. <laughs> garden gloves. You know, so he gave them to me. My hands were so cold, I had to pull them on with my teeth. But my hands got warmer. And after a while, about 30 minutes down the road, Dick said to me, are oh, your hands warm enough? So I gave him the gloves. And every 30 minutes or so, we would switch off. That was very helpful. Um, at Kenmore Square, suddenly there's Larry. He's run a 238.03, his best time ever. and. There I was, and there he was. So uh, he ran in with me. Dick took off. He beat us by a minute. I think he could have run faster, but he didn't know how fast he could run. So Larry ran in with me. I was three oh five oh seven. It's terrific. And um, the time wasn't broken until seventy four when Mickey Gorman ran a two forty seven eleven. So at the finish, um, they gave me a blanket which was nice, and a newspaper man, a re- reporter, came over to me, and he said, why did you do it? And I said, why do people climb Everest? You know, because it's there. They, had a, they actually had a room for the women runners, because by this time there were a bunch of women runners. And it was the women skaters' locker room. There was, a, there was one light bulb, I remember, and then there was a, a, a bench that was not quite a foot wide between the lockers. And um, I was exhausted, and so I lay down for a while. Another woman came in at some point, and I, and she said, is there anything here? I said, no, there isn't. Eventually, I got better, um, and I began to look for Larry. And he had picked up my equipment bag, and there was a ladies' restroom somewhere around, and I changed into some warm clothing. And uh, I think it wasn't until 72, when women were official, that they let us go up to the dining room and get some beef stew. There were a number of women who were pushing to have um, the, the marathon distance be official for women, and there were a number of women who were, who were pressing for the Olympics to have a women's marathon in it, and my 305 was very close to three hours. A lot closer than had been run before. And at that point, well, that was Boston, but actually the record for women at that point was just under 303. Carolyn Walker from California. But Boston is a, as I said, an iconic event. And for a woman to run so close to three hours at Boston, and a young mother, okay, uh, so it obviously didn't hurt me. And in 71, I'm again running alone, and um, just after B.C., which must be you know, six, 10K to go, six miles to go? Roughly. No. Um, Nina Cusa comes sailing by me with some guys from New York running beside her. And I said to myself, I'm going to be second. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want to be first. So, um, Gradually, I caught up to her at Cleveland Circle. And um, by Beacon Street, I was ahead of her. And I eventually got a half a minute ahead of her and maintained that to the end. So that was the first competition.
0: Sarah was very clearly driven to compete, not just against other competitors, like Nina at the Boston Marathon. She wanted to continue to drop her marathon time. And so she went after it once again, a mere six weeks after Boston in late May 1971.
1: There was such a thing called the Plotters Marathon. And I was trying to break three hours. I hadn't succeeded in doing that. And um, Larry said, well, we'll go in the Plotters. And um, Ted Corbett was in that race. Larry ran with me. And, uh, Keeping the, track of the time. And it was run in D W Field Park, which is between Brockton and Avon. It was it was in the four low, laps, four laps in Around the, the in the low sixties. And uh, I ran my hardest. And uh, Larry, but about a half mile to go, Larry said to me, if "You're gonna do it." You I looked it. at my watch, and it was getting awful close. So I picked it up as much as I could and improved my speed somewhat. Got really going pretty hard. <laughs> and I got to the finish line and collapsed um, on just She line. went shh, shh. <laughs> I was I was 30035. And that fall, uh, we ran in the Framingham Marathon uh, in November, I think it was. Again, I was trying. And Larry, I think I was on his bike, he had an injury or something. And um, I ran a 304.41. But we found out some years later that the course was a half a mile long.
0: Sarah did not break three hours during her running career. She was, however, one of the fastest marathoners of her day. Her performance at Plotters was faster than the world's best time, which had been run by Elizabeth Bonner earlier in May at the Philadelphia Marathon. Elizabeth had run a 3.01. A few months later, Bonner would go on to reset that record, running a 2.55 at New York City. So in that period of a few months between Sarah's running of Plotters and Bonner resetting the record at New York City, Sarah's three hours at Plotters appears to be, very unofficially, the fastest time in the world. But Plotters wasn't certified for records, and there's a note that claims it was a bit short. So Sarah can't be formally recognized as holding that record time but it does clearly point to the fact that she was among the women pushing the sport forward for speed over distance. Sarah ran several other marathons, but these would be her fastest days. And Sarah did not just race. She also worked behind the scenes to champion other women at the Boston Marathon.
1: In 72, there were eight women. And in 73, 11 women in 73, but in 74, there were going to be 42 women. Because there were going to be 42 women when there previously had been less than two dozen, Jenny Tuttle, member from our club, and I were talking about it. We knew that there had been a couple of women missed at the finish line in the two years previous just think about it. You have a bunch of old men there with thick glasses, the track and field officials, sweet fellows. And if a woman was a little bit flat-chested, tall, slender, short hair, they thought she was a boy. They didn't recognize a girl. So we felt that if there were some women officials at the finish line, they wouldn't miss a girl. And Gloria Ratty, and a wife of a runner Charlie, and Bev Whitney, wife of a runner Doug Whitney. They these two ladies in particular had been officiating unofficially at at road races for years because the officials would take the first three or maybe the first ten times, and. The guys who came afterwards were out of luck, so these ladies were very upset with that. So they would time everybody at these races. So they were experienced; they knew what to do. So um, Gloria and her friend Bev were, uh, you know, were we suggested them, and they they agreed. So um, Gloria and Bev didn't miss any. Of them. And they officiated for years and years and years. And then uh, Jenny and I went to Will Cloney And we put it to him that this large field of women could be a um, publicity hook to catch the newspaper's interest. You know, they were always looking for some kind of interesting thing to report on. Here was something interesting. And then they held a press conference. There were 42 women signed up. And I prepared the list. I got all kinds of information about what their previous best was, where they were from, where they went to school, uh, what their occupations were, how old they were. And I prepared this pace chart. And you notice it only goes down to six minutes a mile. Now they do much better than that. But remember, this is 74. And I could not really imagine women running very much faster than six-minute paces.
0: Sarah worked in these unofficial capacities over the years to move the sport of marathoning forward for women. As a runner, she put herself in races even when she wasn't formally recognized, and she did the work to put the women in the Boston Marathon in the spotlight, even though she did not work as part of the marathon staff. She was championing other women like Gloria and Bev, who especially in the case of Gloria Ratty, became key contributors to the Boston Marathon for many, many years to come. Gloria is a legend at this race. And while it did take some time, the recognition for Sarah by the Boston Marathon did eventually come.
1: At the 100th running, um, they were making a big celebration. And um, they invited back all the past champions who were still alive. And they included Bobby Gibb and me, which was very nice. I was pleased. I didn't really know what to expect. And um, what I found out was that the first five years that women were official, 72 to 77, they didn't give them medals. And Jackie Hansen, who won in 73, kept pestering them. Why didn't the women get medals? The guys did. And so at this hundredth running, they were going to give the five women their medals. And Gloria Ratty, she was a vice president at that point. And it was she, we are told, who said, What about Sarah May and Bobby? So we were included.
0: Sarah was included. She was officially recognized for her accomplishments in the very early days of marathoning. But this was by no means the first time that it crossed Sarah's mind that she could be an important part of women's distance racing. It was a topic that came up between she and Larry early in her long-distance running days.
1: And he and I were discussing long distances and the marathon, he was inspiring me to be a pioneer. That's what he said to me. Well, you stick your hand in a bucket of water and you pull it out and you look and you don't see anything different. Uh, it, it, I didn't really understand what it meant. Now I do. I see women of all ages running in the streets in their shorts, in the summertime, of course. <laughs> and uh, I see there's a women's 10K race. Uh, around Boston on Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day. The, the first one was in 77, and um, I was on the school committee at that point. You know, I got elected in 75, and I served from 76 to 84. That's four terms. I was going to be running again in 77. So I wanted to use it for publicity. So um, I decided there had been plenty of mother-daughter teams What if I arranged a three-generation team? Because we had gotten my mother running. When my dad died in 64, she came to us and she said, running seems to make you feel good. Can you teach me how? So we got her a pair of running shoes and we would run her around a fresh pond to teach her how to run. So I proposed this to her. And she was eager. She said, sure, what the heck? And so Penny was a sophomore at MIT that year. And uh, so I said, Penny, your grandmother's running. We need a three generation team. So she agreed. If her grandmother was running, she would run.
0: Sarah had inspired women near and far to run and race. And she is firmly established as a pioneer in the sport of running and marathoning. And through these many years, she's gotten to witness remarkable changes and growth in the women's side of the sport and a spirit of competition among women racers that she and Nina kicked off way back before they were even allowed to put on race numbers. It is something she still feels connected to and invested in.
1: When Boston, uh, a decade or so ago, decided to have the women, the elite women have a separate start time, I had to think about it. All we ever wanted to do was to be allowed to run as any of the guys could run. Now, what would this mean? And finally, I realized it wasn't special treatment. It was giving the women a chance to see each other. The elite women, something- To have them have a race. Something you couldn't do in the field of thousands. And at this point, the field is tens of thousands. (laughs) And half of it is women.
0: Yes, the women's side of the sport is thriving. Much as there is still work to be done to get to a place of equity, Sarah's story reminds me that we have come such a long way. And I am so thankful for her and Larry's efforts to lay such a strong foundation. Sarah gave us early benchmarks, which were formative to growing the sport. During a time when there were a lot of really strange myths about what might happen to a woman's body if she ran too far or exerted too much effort, Sarah helped show that not only could a woman cover the miles, but she could also be competitive. And she took the extra step of championing other women in distance running. And this year, the Boston Marathon will be as competitive as ever for women. I am so excited about this year to be running and to be around when there is all the action of this super deep field of competitors. The other thing I want to mention about what's happening at Boston this year is that Patty Hung, who we have had on the podcast before will be completing her 37th consecutive Boston Marathon. This will give her the distinction of running more consecutive Bostons than any other woman in the history of this event. It's really incredible. We've had Patty on the show before, and you can hear her story on our Roads to Boston series. And... We're going to have Patty back to tell her whole story in one episode, and that'll be upcoming soon. Also, I do want to really thank Sarah and Larry for their hospitality and for their time and for sitting down to tell these wonderful and really important stories and also for everything else they've done for the women's side of the sport over the years. I also want to thank Amby Burfoot for helping me get in touch with Sarah. And thank you so much for being here. I say this every single time because it is 100% true. We love making these stories, but the power of them is in you listening and also in you sharing. I would love it if you shared this or other episodes or the entire podcast with someone who you think would appreciate it and enjoy these stories. That is how we grow. I also invite you to follow us on Twitter, and Instagram, and on Facebook. All those links will be in the show notes. I also wanna mention that I do not make this show by myself. As I mentioned way up top, Cormac O'Regan does all the music and sound design for the show, and he does that from his studio in Cork, Ireland. April Mariner does all of the graphics and branding for the show, and she does that from her home studio in Truckee, California. And you can find April at bonfirecollaborative.com. And once again, I am Sheri Louise Turner, your host and producer. And as usual, I am coming to you from my closet studio in Somerville, Massachusetts. Until next time, I do wish you healthy, joyful strides forward.